Run and tell all of the angels, this could take all night. Ladies and gents, boys and girls, welcome once again to what they'll soon be calling the After the Lord Mayor Show podcast. How do you follow up behind the scenes at Brock Hall, interviews with the tank and the ginger ninja himself? Well, the answer of course is with a panel that includes a new member, a father-in-law and son-in-law combination that is unusual at this level, but we're nothing if not innovative. Who needs Andrew Flintoff and Paddy McGuinness when you have Jen, Lenz and Michael? That's what I say. We'll review October looking for our highs, lows, talking points, and we'll discuss some of the stuff and nonsense as well, all in our own inimitable style. You're listening to the BRFCS Podcast, the only podcast approved to cover the 2018-2019 season by the New York City Rovers. Don't forget to check out www.brfcs.com. Enough of the preamble, let's get to the panel. Our first panellist coined the term Ginger Ninja to describe Harrison Reed and was overjoyed to learn this week that he's fully aware of the hashtag. I'm guessing that made you a week, Jen? Hell yes. Thank you so very much, Mr Herbert. And bloody well done to you too. Thought that was a most marvellous listen. And not just because of the Ginger Ninja bit, even though that was immense, but (laughs) all of it just... All colours are brilliant. Thank you. Splendid. It was really great fun, and uh, I've said it before, but we'll definitely get him on before Christmas to say thank you again. But Ryan was uh, Ryan Grant, that is at Rovers, was extremely helpful in setting that up. And I have to say, Daryl Lenahan and Harrison Reed, they must have had media training because they are just so damn good in front of a microphone. So it was it was an absolute joy. Anyhow, we digress. What's your favourite ever Rover shirt? Mine's nostalgic. It's if you go back to when I was first able to start watching the lads live and in the flesh. So it's Perspex on the front, but it's Royal Blue Perspex, the one that you remember Simon Garner in. I know the one you when mean. When I first started going. I know the one you mean. Splendid. Excellent stuff. Now, we break new ground tonight by having a father and son-in-law combination on the pod. Mike <laughs> Dilap is uh, hes not quite overseas, he's, he's in Landudno rather than Anglesey, uh, but he's visiting the in-laws in North Wales, and so we get a two-for-one deal here with his father-in-law, <laughs> Ian Futter, who's also joining our ensemble. So we'll start with Mike, first of all. Mike, how is Ashlandidno this evening? Is that, that's how you pronounce it. Well pronounced, Ian, well pronounced. Yeah, good skills on the pronunciation. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, well, it's not overseas, but it feels like it is. It's got its own ecosystem. It's freezing. But uh, yeah, we're, we're very good. I'm pleased to bring my father-in-law along for the ride as well. Hope you enjoy his input. Splendid. Ian, welcome to the pod. This is your debut. Uh, we expect you to bring maturity and experience to the squad. Is that fair enough? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. I mean, uh, firstly, thanks for inviting me on. Been uh, been looking forward to it all week since you told me about it. So, uh, Mike said it's usually a bit of fun. Usually, yes, expense. yes. <laughs> yeah. at, at my expense. Um, yeah. The first kit, obviously, being an old-timer uh, and a little bit older than you, Ian, I think, just a little bit. Uh, first kit's got to be like the 60s, you know, the old... Uh, Obviously, the cup final shirt, the V-neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, when it went to mid-60s, like the round neck with the cuffs and collar with a blue and white R, which is, I think, the best kit ever. Another part part from that was in 2000, they brought out a shirt, a one-off shirt, if I remember, for the the, uh, Rovers-Wolves game. It was the 125th anniversary shirt. Yes, yes, yes. 
don't know where you're about for it, but um, I've got I've got one on my wall. Yeah, a mate of mine bought one at a club shop that day. I actually got one. I got a picture of one, uh, which Ronnie Clayton signed for me in the club shop. So uh, a bit of a prime possession, really. Fantastic, excellent stuff. Yeah. Um, Mike, what, what's your favourite shirt? I am going to break the trend here and say one of the away shirts. Now I can't recall the exact year, which of course will come as no surprise for anybody who's listened to anything I've ever said. But it is the beautiful uh, orange away shirt of I will go with the late nineties. Yeah, uh, probably sort of like eighteen eighty-seven for all I know. But yeah, I think it, well, I'm going to say ninety-eight, something like that. But it I'll take it. Like, I was right. Splendid. I was right. Yeah. Well, that's a guess. I dare say people will uh, will contact us and tell us we got that hideous wrong. Well, welcome yeah. on board, chaps. Anyhow, um, I think uh, just the quick one, uh, Ian. Uh, I think the best shirts for me were the ones without the sponsorship on. I must admit. Yeah, very much so. so. Now, next up, if Richie's the king of Ewood, would anyone deny her the title Queen of Ewood? It's Lynn's Lewis, fresh from a Disney half marathon. Lynn's, welcome back to the pod. All good? All good, thank you. And your favourite Rover shirt? The 1998 home shirt, so CIS sponsored with the buttons down the front for no particular reason other than every family photo of mine from the age of sort of 12 to 16, I'm in it. So it's a special part of the Lewis family history. Marvellous. I think that's probably my favourite modern shirt because I think it was the one that approximates most of the one that Ian's just described. And finally, taking out time from his 30-day music challenge, it's the Marple Leaf, Michael Taylor. What was today's tune, Michael? Well, I'll give you a sneak preview of what tomorrow's tune is instead. Even better. And and it is All You Need Is Love, a song that everybody should listen to, especially <laughs> when you sing it in tribute to Damien Duff. Absolutely. Yeah. And your favourite Rover shirt? Uh, the 1975 one, where the collar is uh, like a diamond, a triangle yeah. uh, split in two, blue and white halves. That was the one, it was just before I started going regularly to Rovers, but all the hard lads that I used to go with on the train from Lancaster used to, used to have that one. <laughs> Yeah, a nice shirt. I think Toffs do a, a nice retro version of it with uh, with the red rose badge on. Excellent. So there we go. We have a panel. The panel has a Mike, a Michael, and two Ians. What could possibly go wrong? Let's kick off tonight by reflecting upon October. So let's review October then, and rather than match by match, we're going to have a look at the month as a whole. What were the highs for you in October, Mike? Uh, I, I imagine this might be a bit of a running theme, so sorry if I'm covering ground that others will as well, but uh, it's going to be hard to look past the, the Leeds home game, really. You know, it's just possibly a, a nice benchmark for how far we've come in You know, in a, in a year or so's time. I thought we were playing a team that were were better than us, in the sense that they had you know, uh, perhaps more technically gifted players. But it was also a sign that we can get our game plan right, we can play to our strengths. Can, and also we've finally got a bit of pace in the side as well, which is always a good sign. Always a nice nice feeling to send such a healthy batch of lovely Leeds fans home in such a good mood as well. Yeah, more, more than what, 20, 25,000, 30,000, was it? 40, uh, I mean, it, if we can't sell our seats, then they will sell our seats. They made that very clear. But if they fancy a little trip back to Yorkshire in a bad mood, then all power to us. But yeah, that, that absolutely is the undeniable high. Marvellous. Ian, for you, what was uh, what was your high of October? Yeah, the high for me was, I mean, I haven't seen any of the games live in uh, October, but uh, I remember seeing the game against Bolton on the tally. Uh, on Sky, and I thought they played really well. Uh, and to come away with a result there was a, a good, good three points. You know, 
and it set them up for the Leeds game, I think, in a way. And as Mike said, they got a great result. Disappointing at Swansea, obviously, but uh, it's always a tough shout going there. And then uh, we come to the West Brom game. Well, obviously, that was a you know just one of those days, I think, wasn't it, really? It was it's Where, one that will linger long in the memory, I suspect. Well, it will, <laughs> I think. For many reasons. Season, end of the season, a lot of people will be saying, like, you know, that point could be a very valuable point. For Indeed. Jen, from, from your perspective, Hannes? Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. Loved the match. I, I loved the atmosphere. I just loved the day. I might have got a wee bit carried away afterwards. And may I humbly apologise to everybody who follows me on Twitter. for I got told I am basically had my night out on Twitter after <laughs> said match. A little bit giddy. You were tired and emotional. I think that's that's the phrase yeah, you're, you're looking for. Isn't might it? have been a bit obvious. So, um, sorry, folks, for that. But it was a bloody good day. Also, found out you embarrass your daughter if you walk out of Morrison singing "We Beat the Leeds Two One" quite loudly. That was a highlight. But then the West Brom game was tip top too, and so very jealous of you guys that were there. But the the fight, the whole team being a group of absolute warriors, and yeah. so for those that were there, I fear for your heart rates. It was painfully enough listening to it in the car stuck in a supermarket car park and then refusing to go into my in-laws that we were supposed to be visiting for my father-in-law's <laughs> birthday until it had finished. It was quite extraordinary. I think yeah, when we come to the notables, uh, that will get a mention, I'm sure. Thanks for that, Jen. Michael? Yeah, I think the the big high of the whole month has been the togetherness of the squad. I mean, to be able to bounce back from a, a defeat at Swansea with a battling performance against West Brom. And that, that togetherness in a big squad, you know, there are players who are called upon to come and serve and they do it and they don't the, the highlight obviously being Smallwood <laughs> going in goal but it's not like he was he was forced to do it either there were others putting their hands up too as well and that kind of spirit and they all talk about it as well has just been amazing they showed it in spades at Bolton at Le- home to Leeds and then obviously capped it at West Brom with a, a really valuable point in terrible terrible circumstances absolutely yeah did you see um, Amari Bell's Instagram post I think yeah Mike yeah amazing as well. that was yeah. uh, you, you certainly do get a, a sense that there is a real togetherness I know it's something we've, we've touched on before but um, that was the real epitome of it I think on Saturday and I think if it can inspire Amari Bell to actually take players on like I think he'd used to do at Fleetwood then brilliant even better yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. We might we might come on to that when we talk about tactics later on in the, in the pod. So we'll we'll hold that thought for now. Linz, October for you, uh, as well as running a half marathon, which is no mean feat. What about uh, Rovers? Um, I think people have covered most of it, but I think for me, a fit Adam Armstrong at Leeds because I think he's been carrying a knock for a good few games, tore them to shreds. A tank goal with a Conway assist with his first touch always fancy, makes fancy me you happy. noticing that. Fancy me noticing that. And the last 15 minutes at West Brom were the most terrifying but wonderful football experience I've had in a long, long time. And I was so unbelievably proud of them. And Smallwood gets all the credit. And, you know, I, I tweeted out how wonderful he was to take the shirt without question. But that they all fought for each other, were chucking themselves in front of things. I celebrated quite hard on Saturday. So, yeah, surprised. they would be mine. Yeah, I think it's it's been a good month. Um, I think Saturday was quite extraordinary, and as I say, when we when we touch on notables in a second, I'm sure we'll come back to that. It's not all been wine and roses, though. Linz, any any 
negative points? Any any lows from the month? Um, I think Swansea would probably be an easy pick. And obviously, I went, and it's quite far, so it was a kind of eight hour round trip for disappointing ish performance. We were competitive first half, but their substitutes made a massive difference and it was very Bristol City-esque which I was also at so I think the key is if I don't go these things probably won't happen um, but I think the real low for me is attached to the real high and that's the injury to Rhea and that is going to be massive I think we knew instantly on Saturday it was bad um, obviously it's come out that he's at home at the moment and then needs to see a specialist and for me he's fundamental in everything we do so I think he's a massive loss but most importantly I hope he gets healthy really quickly Absolutely. Michael, any, any lows from your perspective? I had a couple of nagging doubts about our character at the beginning of the month when Sheffield United turned us over. You know, they, they, they clearly were a much better team than we are. Um, it's a good sign that we bounced back from it. I haven't seen enough of Lewis Travis. Apparently he did very well coming on against West Brom to show what a versatile sort of player he is. He did. And I, I said at the time after the Sheffield United game, I'd like to have seen a little bit more of Rothwell and, and Palmer. But that's that's the joy of a big squad, and I think now with the injuries that we've suffered, we're going to we're going to see some of that. But I, this is what I said after the Sheffield United game: I questioned our character. I completely retract that now, and they've I've been complete. That doubt has been completely dispelled from my mind by the rest of the performances through the course of the month. Excellent, Jen. Anything that took the shine off from your perspective? Mine's only the injuries, but apart from knowing that. Ray is going to be out for a bit, but we don't know how long. It sounds like Rodwell's fine and dandy. But on the plus side of that, Nyambi played for an hour for the under-23s this week, so hopefully he's on his way back, which is something to look forward to. Ian, what do things look like from North Wales? Anything that uh, upset you greatly? A little bit with Lindsay, I think the loss of Ray could be huge for him because a uh, great keeper, and I think he'll be out for, what, probably a couple of months and uh, not too sure about Luke Wilder or whatever you call it. Uh, so, uh, obviously, they're going to have to give him a lot of protection. And, uh, of course, it'll also give that young lad, is it Fisher? The, yeah, uh, next the number lad three. Down. Yeah. He'll, uh, he'll come in as, obviously, sub goalie, but uh, be a step up for him. A little bit disappointing he hasn't played Brereton a bit more. I know he's uh, only a young lad and he's still learning, but I'd like to sort of see him in there, you know, and playing him up front rather than sticking him out and on the wing, which is a bit daft today, but... Mike, from your perspective? Easy one to cover for me here. Um, I'm a Blackburn fan that lives in Sheffield, so, and I work with, I'm trying to do a rough head count here, four Sheffield United fans. I mean, that night was absolutely proved to me that Satan is a real person, uh, <laughs> that life is a terrible thing that no one should have to go through, and that sewers run through the large bulk of the rooms in my house. So what the notable uh, events that happened in October then, what was it that sort of really leapt out and grabbed you? Jen, from your perspective. Harrison Reed. Naturally. The ginger ninja himself. He's coming on leaps and bounds. I, we need to bribe him. We need to offer him all sorts of wonderful things. Um, bribe Southampton, tell him how pants he is and they don't need him back. I don't want him going south again at all. I want him to be properly 100% one of ours. Mm, he's been excellent so far, no doubt. Mike, your notables? Uh, other than Jen getting 5% commission on any Ginger Ninja stock, I'm assuming that would be a highlight. But, um, <laughs> I mean, as a notable, I'd say it's it's just starting to bubble to the fore that Adam Armstrong could play a, a big part because his early sort of season performances were not so much worrying, but seemed slightly 
limited compared to what he was offering last year. It was good in the Leeds game. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, you know, that was the first sign that there's a definite, definite role in the side for him because he's a cracking player and I really, really hope he does well for us. He's a, an easy player to root for. Uh, Linz, notable performances from your perspective. Um, well, we put this out on Twitter earlier, didn't we, And So I'm just scrolling through now to have a look at what our various followers think. And actually, the guy who sits next to me agrees with this about Danny Graham and what the squad is or isn't without Graham. Um, so that's come from Nick Kershaw. And actually, yeah, very noticeable when they take Graham off, how the dynamic of the team changes. Um, and then James Wilcock is also saying around players playing in their natural positions, um, and I think that's something that's come through a lot. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later on when we talk about tactics, but it's a, an extremely valid point. We also had a reply from um, Russ Prescott, uh, who always uh, gives us valuable uh, input, and he talked about the importance of specialist fullbacks. Uh, without Ryan Nambi, we've lost two of our five league games. We had only one defeat in ten before that, and even that, even then, Nyambi was subbed with the game, sort of like uh, poised at Bristol City. He, we're hoping that he is going to be back. I think he is a, a massive loss because it, it not only is it just we lose him, but then I think in pulling Elliot Bennett back to right back, we lose something else by playing him in his second favourite position. So I think specialist fullbacks is, uh, is is a tremendously important point. Uh, and bless him, uh, of this parish, Josh Boswell, he sort of says we need a lean, hungry, mean, six-foot-four centre-half, preferably with mixed martial arts experience. And certainly with the, the, uh, the injuries that we've been having lately, yeah, uh, some cover at the back there would be uh, would be helpful. Be interesting to see what happens in January. I think the, we've made the point about Downing and whether he's trusted at this level or whether he's maybe not fully fit. We shall see. But, of course, we've let Wharton go out on loan on the basis that we'd have Williams and Nyambi able to cover at centre-back, and they both picked up injuries. So uh, life isn't always straightforward, despite your plans. Michael, lastly then, but by, by no means least, uh, your notable performances in October? Well, just a, a, an and finally, and it was this, this moment towards the end of the Leeds game where there's a bit of argy-bargy on the touchline. Brereton picked the ball up, looked up at the linesman and just casually tossed it into the riverside. And I thought, brilliant, he's one of the lads. And finally, as well, we, we know how to waste time towards the end of a game and play it out and use all those tactics to just run the clock down a little bit, which we just seem to have forgotten how to do this season. And, um, and that, for me, was a massive notable we gave them a lot of grief, didn't we, through <laughs> the year for late goals. And there were lots of people pouring over Excel spreadsheets trying to prove that it was statistically significant. So I suppose seeing behaviour like that is, is good, particularly when it results in hanging on to a 2-1 win over Leeds. OK, so that's our review of October. Um, we'll have a little break now, then we'll come back and Linz will tell us about everything that she's been doing with regards to Ewood to Disneyland. So, Lynn, since you were last on, you've run a Disney half marathon. Uh, and, of course, that followed the Ewood to Disneyland's Step Challenge. Talk us through what you've been up to, uh, where things stand at the moment then, and what else you've got lined up in terms of fundraising. 
Yeah, so thank you again for the opportunity to talk about it. Um, yeah, so I've ran a half marathon since I was last on, as you do. Um, and anybody that follows me on Twitter will know I'm the least athletic person in the world. And I like my food and my bed. So it's quite an achievement. Um, but yeah, I was having a, a boring kind of Sunday night, I think it was, a few weeks before, trying to work out some fundraising ideas. And I put a tweet out sort of saying, you know, what could we do? Um, and lo and behold, up popped our amazing amazing Jen with the concept of what became hashtag Ewood to Disneyland. The idea was that we as a Rovers family would walk as many steps as possible over four weeks and try and see if we could walk the equivalent of walking from Ewood Park to Disneyland. Did I get that right Jen? Have I summed that up? I think so. I think you've done it marvellously. Yes. So it kind of went from there and we wanted or I wanted to raise about £300 initially. So I think we were just short of seven grand. Like everything with Hashtag for Megan and with what we as a community have done in her name, it just exploded. So um, loads of people got involved, made loads of new friends, um, keep getting stopped at Ewood, being like, are you the Disneyland girl? Which is better than you, the Conway lady. I was about to say that, yes. You know, we're moving forward, um, and yeah, it, it went it went really really well. So um, it ended up raising about thirteen hundred pounds. So we've broken the eight thousand pound barrier now. Um, I ran the half marathon alongside that, and then thought, what do you do once you've run a half marathon? I know, I'll go to Bournemouth. So off I went on my merry adventure to Bournemouth. Um, had a great time, and then was in the car park queuing to get out about an hour later. Very bitter. And my phone started pinging and I thought oh what's going on here you know what who have I offended and obviously the lovely Ryan had arranged for um Craig Conway to send me a little video so um I'm very grateful for that and it's had a lot of views most of which have been me to be fair um and it is saved on my phone um continuously and watched a lot but yeah so fundraising has gone really well was gonna stop but have as always keep getting contacted with kind of things to do so I'll be back in the new year with the suggestion of a kind of lunch with some ex-players speaking and that's all being kind of organised for me so I'll be back to promote that that sounds Um, great yeah and just to say thank you to everybody really so it's still going really really well and if anybody's got any other ideas or just wants to get in touch and have a chat do because I'm making a lot of new friends out of it and getting a lot of hugs so I'm not complaining and thank you very much to Jen because it was Jen's baby that I kind of ran with so it was much appreciated Marvellous. Well, what, looking from the outside uh, at, at this initiative, it did sort of organically grow quite quickly, as you say, and from being sort of, I just want something to motivate me as we, we move to the next challenge, it actually became a challenge in its own right. Hi, Linz. I love you very much, but can I just remind you that although we sent you a video, it is still stalking and still an arrestable offence. Thank you, Mike. I will remember that. <laughs> I like my freedom. <laughs> but he knows my name, so it's a start. There you go. See, so the ginger ninja knows of Jen and Craig knows of you. Our, our mission here is complete. Our work here is All done. is well with the world, boys. All is oh, and, well. And Ian, Ian wants in as well here, by the way, Lynn. Strap yourself in. Just to uh, firstly say congratulations, Lynn, on that. It's a brilliant uh, total for you. 
You've done thank really you, well. Thank you, lovely, and thank you in for fact, your contribution. Oh, you're welcome. I didn't, I didn't realise that we were just getting off football for the moment. I didn't realise you were a Lewis Hamilton fan. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Have I never told you the story of me meeting Lewis Hamilton? Actually, no. Anyhow, that's the end of this section, <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll move on now. And, um, <laughs> Coming off that now, are we? Yeah, yeah the, the Lewis Hamilton <laughs> podcast starts uh, <laughs> next month. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> yes. That's great. Thanks very much for that update, Lindsay. Okay. Thanks once again. <laughs> Thanks once again to Rovers and uh, and Ryan Grant for, for, for getting the Craig Conway video. We'll take a little break now. When we come back, we're going to look at tactical setups and try and agree what our best formation is. So welcome back, everybody. What we're going to do now is we're, we're going to play, I suppose, football manager. And doesn't everybody play football manager these days? Tactical setups. What is Rover's best formation? Should we play three at the back, four at the back? Who should provide the midfield width? Where should we play our strikers? All these questions and more. Jen, this was, this was your kernel of an idea, so perhaps you'd like to kick off the debate. Are we now good enough to make the opposition worry about us? I think we are, yeah. Um, definitely at home. I have issues with um, setting up always because of who we're playing. I know we've got to take into account. I know we've got to look into their tactics. Blah, blah, blah. But at home, we're now Fortress Ewood, which the fact that we're Fortress Ewood might make what I'm about to say completely null and void because Mowbray knows what he's doing. However, I'd love us to go balls out more at home and say, this is our strongest team. This is the way that we play best in this formation, doing this thing in a kind of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough way, rather than bowing down to them and switching our play to play to their strengths rather than to play to our strengths. It's our ground. It's our team. Go full Billy Big Bullocks rather than... That was close. Setting up a court. I know, sorry. <laughs> rather than being self to who we've got there. But no, it, it's, it's our turf. Come and play our way. So, Michael, this is this is a theme that that you've touched on in the past. So, it's an appropriate time to revisit it. I, I recall last year on a pod, you were you were um, I think it was the, was it the Fleetwood game at home? Yeah, you were saying that that Mobley was talking about them as if they were a combination of Barcelona and Real Madrid. Yeah. Um, do we pay too much respect? Well, did we pay too much respect to the opposition, and that's changed, or are we still paying too much respect? Do you think? I think he probably pays the right amount of respect, but there's been one occasion this season where it's actually backfired on us. I think uh, Mowbray admitted in the post-match interview after the Swansea game that, oh yeah, we we set ourselves up to exploit their left-back, who we thought was going to be slow. He wasn't playing. Or, or, you know, the thing about all football matches is the, the the added dimension, which you always have to factor in once the whistle's blown to start the game, is the other team. Yeah, and they they will they they will have a, a, a participatory role in this. We're not dribbling round cones on a training field. And I completely agree with Jen's point about at home. We've just got to absolutely play to all our strengths: solidity at the back, aggression in midfield, and we've not mentioned him on this pod tonight. The best player in the division, Bradley Dack. Even when he's not playing the Bradley Dack free libero role, he's a warrior. He gets stuck in. Tackles bounce off him and he gets and he flies in himself. And he's always happy to give the credit to other players in the team. So I'd like us to do that away from home as well. To um and if there's one tactic I'd like us to, to not do is just not defend quite so deep. 
particularly when we've only got a 1-0 lead or we're coming into the last 15 minutes where we're earning a point away from home. We do tend to just drop 10, 15 yards a little bit too deep. Linz, from your perspective, what, what do you think is our best formation? How would you like to see us line up? I like a back four, personally, but I do think you need full-backs in there. I don't think he knows what his best 11 is and what his best formation is, and I think that's why we've seen so much tinkering. And I think in some positions, how do you drop certain players? So he's been incredibly loyal to Smallwood when you've got Evans and Reed, who arguably have both played better. Smallwood's um, repaid that faith, though, hasn't he? He's been absolutely extra, extra well, except in the last two or three games. I am Team Smallwood, and I think when we watched the where what game were we at? Where it finished? I can't think. Reading, Reading game, and Smallwood was taking a lot of stick, and I was very much, you know, we need to stick with them. But how do you how do you pick Smallwood over Reed and Evans? And I think this is his problem. Um, I think Armstrong now he's fit has to be one of the first names on the team sheet but for me he hasn't been fit and he's been playing and I think that's why we're seeing the tinkering that we're seeing because he's trying to work out where everybody fits mm. but I think you have you can't build your entire team around Dak but at the same time I don't want to see Dak being marked out of games or being played out of position mm. and where he's been played the last couple of games that's not where I want to see Bradley Dak yeah, I, th- I thought he struggled on Saturday, if I'm being honest, because he was he was isolated. He grafts, and credit to him, because when you've got that kind of trickery and that skill, you could quite easily not, and he's happy to track back, he's happy to tackle, but I don't want to see him doing that. I want to see that magic, and us facilitating that magic yeah. for him. And then I think if he's taking Graham off, which he's doing because he doesn't think he can do 90 minutes continuously, who are you replacing him with? Why is Bereton a winger? Well, that that, that is a, an intriguing point. Um, at which point I'll bring in Ian. Um, Ian, what, 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 where would you play Ben Brereton? I mean, an old school, really. I always like to play two up front. You know, you should have two main strikers and two big guys. I mean, Armstrong's OK, but he's a little little. I think he's better used out in the wing. I personally would play Graham with Brereton up front. But a 4-4-2 for me, he would maybe away from home. Obviously, got to change things around a little yeah. bit. But uh, stick with four four two at even, I think. Mike, is that just a, a, a ridiculously gung-ho, or is, is is that what we we are capable of? And would that give us our best uh, opportunity? No, my, my father-in-law is obviously talking absolute rubbish, I'm afraid. Yeah, you're all overthinking this. Best formation, Richie Smallwood in nets. Uh, <laughs> every, we only, we only play with 10 because we don't really need 11. Yeah, I mean, I think the 11th person is just a luxury that we, we, we can't afford. But um, yeah, just Russian roulette on everything else. And then the ghost of Jake and Daven, uh, Jacob Davenport in midfield. I would put, I'm going to come at this from a little bit of an angle in all seriousness. We're not that good that we don't have to worry about the opposition. I don't really buy into the let's go gung-ho at home type approach because we're not that good. But what I would say is that our best formation, we do have to tailor it to who we're playing because I think uh, not so much our formation, our best approach to the games is the type of things that we're doing in that more in the sort of spirit and our sort of mentality and that we might get beat here, but you're going to get a kick in and you're going to get a game. And if you win, you're going to earn this rather than, before Mowbray, we had far too soft a shell. I think our mentality has got us points that we wouldn't have claimed in the past. Yeah, totally agree. But, I mean, again, you saw that at West Brom. I mean, playing the last 15 minutes with 10 men, we'd have absolutely waved a white flag a long, long time ago, and we saw it out, and I think that, that really is a big credit to us all. Not just 
the fact that we took them on with 10 men, not just the fact that we took them on with a midfielder in goal, but if you look at the back four, as we said, we've mentioned it earlier, you know, Lewis Travis comes on and he's told to play right-sided centre-back alongside a left full-back with a right winger outside him at right-back, Amari Bell being the only one playing his natural position. The, the rest of them were all playing in midfield because of just that, that sort of like bank across the field trying to trying to defend it was it was just extraordinary stuff um yeah. even pep guardiola lines man city up differently against different opposition so i totally get that and let's be honest you yeah, know Mo, Mo knows a lot more about football than we do the the one thing we've touched on it earlier in the pod the one thing that i'm still not sure about is what what it's doing for ben brereton's confidence being brought on and then playing wide that's the only thing I'm not sure about. Now, if Mowbray obviously thinks that's the best thing for him to do, and he sees him day in, day out in training. Um, but from my perspective as a fan, just watching, I kind of just want to I want to unleash him, take the handbrake off and let him have a go through the middle. Um, but we shall see. Right, moving on to the next topic on the agenda, uh, something that Steve Waggett mentioned in the, in the Telegraph, I think, couple of weeks back and he got a bit of criticism for it was the the subject of attendances and he expressed disappointment at the levels of of, of attendances at at home games so my question to the panel is uh, is he right should he have criticized the fans and what what is impacting on our attendances so michael what what do you think is is the, the rationale for him making those comments and is he justified in so doing well, I think he's disappointed that attendances aren't higher than they are. I think we, I think everybody is. I think the players come out onto the pitch and see empty seats, and it must be quite disheartening. But the fault with that doesn't lie with Steve Waggett. It doesn't lie with the fans who are in the stadium. They're the ones who, who are committed to Rovers. They're the ones that listen to podcasts like this, that contribute to it, that go to the matches. They're, they're the last people that should be in the line of fire for any criticism because we're the ones who are have stuck with the club through thick and thin. I think what it does start to suggest to us is what can be done to try to fill the stadium. We did it at the end of last season when all the part-timers came back for the for the Oxford game. And, and then um, invaded and, the pitch. Well, you said that, not me. But, I uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's incumbent upon him as the executive leadership behind the scenes to find ways to entice people to come back to Rovers. Yes, a winning team is going to have a lot to do with it. But, you know, getting promoted from the third division last season hasn't brought swathes of people back. It's, you know, the direction of travel is good. But it, but the the the, in, the increase year on year uh, is is modest. It, it would it would seem. Linz, from your perspective, you you go away an awful lot following the team. How important is ticket pricing in getting people in the ground? In your view, um, I think it's difficult for me to judge this because obviously there is no home game for me. So a home game is a six hour round trip. And I'm daft enough to do things like Swansea on a Tuesday night. So I don't know if I'm the best person to judge because I will just kind of turn up anywhere, evidently. I think away prices, I don't really want to pay any more than 20 quid. It was 30 quid to go to Swansea. You know, why on a Tuesday night would you want to go and pay £30 to travel 500 miles or whatever it is? So I think... but. That's not going to help in terms of home attendances. Um, I think if my dad was here, my dad's favourite thing around this is kind of hook the kids and hook the kids young. So get kids in cheap, free, whatever 
they'll want a program they'll want a scarf in my case as a child they'll want a pie and then they'll be spending money and hopefully they'll see good football they'll see a Bradley Dack kind of player want to come back and and see them again but I think the club is doing all they can the social media is enjoyable initiatives like the fireworks on saturday is something i've never experienced going to rovers sort of stay behind to actually do something as a community but i think michael's right we need to be asking the people that aren't going what will make you come um and almost rewarding the people that are going and keeping those people loyal Mm. season ticket prices are massive for me i think we need to make the season tickets affordable for me it is affordable because what i pay per game is probably what i'd pay for a cocktail on a night out you've got to be amongst the cheaper season tickets in the division yeah yeah that's that's the reality ian could i just come in again on the on the point about season tickets and and ticket prices you know the the nearest professional football club to to where i live is manchester city arguably playing the best football in the world right now and on Thursday night, they're playing Fulham, and the university that I work at is pretty much giving tickets away to try and fill the stadium. Yeah. It's the same next week, they're playing Shakhtar Donetsk, and again, there's going to be more empty seats than probably occupied seats at the Etihad that night. It's it's not a problem that's uncommon to to, to, to clubs other than Rovers. They all face this. You know, there are not there's not a full house at all. Trafford at the moment for for all their different reasons as well you know football is in the leisure industry personally I think Rovers have had the pricing strategy before where it's significantly less than um, significantly lower price than other clubs and I think we've got to do something really quite radical like that to be cheaper than Barrow and Accrington and Morecambe Um, Jen you 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 take your daughter that right? do yeah yeah to most home games so what what made her want to go and watch football or did you just drag her along kicking and screaming um, God bless her teacher, because she'd been dragged along kicking and screaming at other times and then ended up taking carrier bags full of colouring in stuff and just wasn't remotely interested. Yeah. And then it was that we'd arranged for somebody to look after her and Joe while me and Jay went. But um, her last year of primary school, her teacher was a rather season ticket holder. And Hannah's always been a little bit of a, a brown nose and it, it did me the world of good because we were discussing Joe wanted to come. Right. And so we we're discussing whether she went to me Auntie Tina's or if my mum could sit with her or, or whatever. And she, she just piped up and said, I, 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 I wouldn't mind going. So, oh, nothing to do with your teacher this time, fans. No, nothing to do with this at all. But she went and she watched it and she loved it and she got it and she started. She talked an immense amount of rubbish throughout the match that you have to kind of filter out. But she's, she started asking proper questions. She knows who the players are now. She had a favourite, which was Antonson, last season. She's in love with Bennett now and has Bennett on the back of the suit. And she's pumped up. She said the Leeds match was her favourite bar the end of last season. Yeah. And she's got the bug now. She she now gets why I can be such an incomplete when it comes to football, how I so can become obsessed. And do, do you have season tickets or do you, you pick and choose your games? This is the first season ever that we've had a full season ticket right. for it. And I, I've had to sign a contract with the husband <laughs> <laughs> to, to allow me to do this. We're not going to go into the details of that. No, but no, no. <laughs> the things you do for the love of your club. But Hannah's season ticket is very reasonably priced. It's only about 70 quid. Joe's would be free. I presume they're already doing With all the stuff that they do in the community and going to the schools, 
I'm presuming they're giving tickets away left, right and centre to get the kids in. It's, it's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't definitively know the answer. I, I know quite a bit about what Accrington Stanley are doing and they, are, they, are, they have some amazing initiatives. I think Andy Holt there has, has been revolutionary in terms of mm-hmm. um, giving shirts away to year three pupils. This is the third year that Stanley have done it and they're keeping the same home kit for the third year as well. And when somebody That's asked phenomenal. him why, he said, well, because we're going to give out 1,300 shirts to kids and I don't want it to be obsolete in May. Uh, and plus the fact all the kids that got them two years ago and 12 months ago would then hand them down to the little brothers or cousins or sisters or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Uh, so those, that's still the current shirt. I just think that what they're doing is, is tremendous. One other um, potential impact that I wanted to talk about, and Mike, I'll bring you in at this point then. Um, Red Button on Sky, there's, there's a, th- a forum thread on it on BRFCS talking about this, and then you've got the I Follow thing. You and I live in Sheffield. It's not necessarily as easy to get to games, although Sheffield is nearer than Nottingham, so Lynn's will be tutting, I'm sure, under her breath, if not uh, loudly at this point. What are the effects of streaming the red button, do you think, on, on attendances? There's two sides to come at it. I mean, at the moment, I, of course, find it particularly useful. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'd love to come to more games than I do at the moment, but I'm a, a father of two children who aren't quite at the age to perhaps appreciate it you know going in a, in a match day experience not without social services being alerted in uh, in, a, in a particularly bad way so i find it particularly beneficial i don't it doesn't you know it doesn't put me off going to any more games unless people want to babysit for me on a saturday between three and five but yeah i mean i can see the criticism from the other side because there are some people who will just look at it and you know and think oh well that's the easy option i don't have to get off my backside i can sit and it's warm in here and i can watch it for a couple of hours so it's a tough one i get that i don't think anyone has the answer it's just the main benefit i can see just in a general sense of it is of course our overseas fans who perhaps find it difficult to engage with the club on you know on a match day basis do now have that facility so for that reason it absolutely should stay yeah, well, it, it will. I think it's only going to get um, more prevalent. There's no doubt about that. The, you're absolutely right. The, there is no easy answer on this one. Uh, I just found it interesting that, that Steve Waggett must have had some expectations and, and the numbers haven't lived up to his expectations. I think the cost of attending a game is significant still, notwithstanding the fact mm. that we are one of the cheaper ones. And I think it, bringing children in that that seems to be the key for the future but of course it can take five or ten years before you start to feel feel the benefits of those kinds of um of activities ian from a from a perspective of somebody who's been watching rovers since the, since the 60s um you you yeah, are, think, you too are a distant rovers fan what, what do you think yeah, can be done to well i mean i think the start of the season we're getting like what 12 13 thousand i think that waggot was expecting them like 15 16,000 perhaps regular Rovers fans this year, but it hasn't happened. I mean, it's a bit of an age-old problem. I mean, uh, even years ago, when they are in the Prem, they weren't getting, only for the big teams, they were getting 30,000, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But it does make you wonder where the where these 10,000 that don't come down, what do they do on a Saturday afternoon, isn't it? Well, that's, that's another thing entirely, isn't it, where there's a lot more... Com- competition for leisure time these days but I do I do agree with the others that uh, they should get the youngsters in it's the youngsters that are the future fans yes so get them in even if you sort of used to run a scheme years ago when they sort of said don't oh, bring a friend you know or bring a bring a youngster in the game for free well they could maybe try that Right, so there we go then, attendances. We're going to have a little break now, and then when we come back, we're going to cast our memories back to the, the days of the playoffs. Bill Arthur, our Canadian correspondent, has, has done us another little pre-recorded section, so we've got that to look forward to. <laughs> 
Playoff years. I'll say straight away that I'm not a fan of the playoffs. If three clubs are going to be promoted, it should, in my opinion, be the top three over the season. Finishing sixth shouldn't get you promoted. But my club finishes sixth, I think it's a great system. And that's what happened with Rovers, with four playoffs between 1988 and 1992. During the first two stagings of the playoffs in 87 and 88, the four teams involved were the three clubs that finished directly below the automatic promotion positions, plus the club which finished directly above the automatic relegation places in the division above. In the first season of the playoffs in 1987, Rovers finished 12th, but in the next year qualified in 5th place, and in the next few years we were destined to become the nearly men of the playoffs. However, in 1988 hope sprung eternal, even after each failure, until, of course, we struck gold in 1992 with Uncle Jack and King Kenny. It was another Scotsman, Don Mackay, who was manager during that period. Don did a really good job, in my opinion. He took us to Wembley for that memorable Full Members' Cup final and gave us some surprise buys, like Steve Archibald on loan from Barcelona. Anyway, back to playoffs. 1988 was our first year in the playoffs. And as we finished fifth, we had to play First Division Chelsea in a two-legged tie. The first leg was at Ewood and the second at Stamford Bridge. I was living in Kent and enthusiastically bought my ticket for the second leg before the first leg was played. If I hadn't, and I'd waited for the first leg result, I probably wouldn't have gone, as Rovers lost 2-0 and the chances of the turning that around were pretty slim. Anyway, I had my ticket and after work in central London, made my way to Stamford Bridge for what turned out to be a miserable evening. The old Stamford Bridge always seemed a soulless place to me, and with the fence, which at one time Ken Bates planned to be electrified, surrounding the pitch, and a hostile crowd, it was more like Stalo Gloft 3, and my expectations were even lower by the time of kick-off. As it turned out, there would be no great escape for Rovers. Two goals from Chelsea made it 4-0 on aggregate before Scott Sellers pulled one back. It was, as the saying goes, some small consolation. But then, two more Chelsea goals completed the route, and that was us condemned to another season in the second division. My journey back into central London and another hour home on the train was miserable enough. What it was like for the Rovers fans returning to Blackburn must have been ten times worse. A really disappointing end to the season. The hope kindled by reaching the playoffs seemed to me to make it worse than if we had not qualified. But by the time the 1988-89 season started, that was behind us, and hopes were rising again. It was an unforgettable season for me, for more than one reason, and I'll come back to that in a moment. I'm not going to dwell on what happened during the season. Living in Kent, I saw some away games and some home games when I was back in the north visiting family. But since I'm talking about the playoffs, I'll jump right to the end of the season. Rovers finished fifth again. That season it was the same format as now, in that the teams in 3rd to 6th qualified, and we were drawn against Watford. Once again the first leg was at Ewood. I couldn't get to that game but had my ticket for the Watford leg. After a goalless draw at Ewood, I thought, here we go again, deja vu all over again as they say. But this was different. An early Simon Garner goal gave us hope, 
and it was an away goal so would eventually be the deciding factor. I don't remember much about the game, the nerves of both teams were jangling too much for it to be a classic, and the nerves of we supporters were jangling even more after Watford scored and we then went through 30 minutes of extra time hell. Digressing for a moment, one of the main changes in football over the last 30 years, it seems to me, has been fan expectations. Not just Rovers, but at all clubs. Also the extreme reactions to results. A couple of wins and we are on our way to the top. A couple of losses and we want to sack the manager. The lack of perspective about what is after all just a game, did I really say that, is alarming. Yes, we all want to win, but above all, surely we want the joy, excitement and shared experience that the game can bring, whichever division we're in. There are more important things in life than our team's results and being obsessed with them. By 1988 I knew that, but that season reinforced it for me. You see, between October and February, we had three family deaths, and that was very much on my mind as I drove home round the M25 that night after the Watford game. I wasn't ecstatic. How could I be? But I was pleased. Football had suspended real life for a couple of hours. Most of you, even the younger ones, will probably know what happened next. The hope that was generated after the first leg against Crystal Palace was dashed at Selhurst Park. I was disappointed and angry about the way the game panned out, with the disputed penalty, and finished with the Crystal Palace fans on the touchline. But it was not the deep-seated anger and bile that we see so much in social media. It was a feeling of resignation. As I walked away with the strains of glad all over ringing in my ears, I tried to put the whole experience behind me immediately. Much worse things had happened in the preceding months than Rovers losing a playoff game. After that failure, we finished fifth again the next season, but did not even make it through the first round, losing to Swindon. Things then went downhill the next season, with a finish in 19th place. There was no doubt a hangover from the previous season, but then, of course, everything changed in 91-92. To coin a phrase, Don had taken us as far as he could and could not attract the kind of players that Uncle Jack wanted with his bigger ambitions. Don had to go. But who would have guessed what happened next? Optimism abounded when Kenny was appointed. But harking back to what I said earlier about expectations of the short-term views of many fans, I'm reminded of Blue-Eyed Boy's comments about the run of six losses towards the end of that season, and how fans would have reacted if social media had been in existence then. Anyway, our boys scraped through in sixth place. When we played the second leg against Derby, I lived those last few excruciating minutes through the radio as I travelled from Scotland home to Kent, and could still feel the excitement as the result came through, and dreams of the final at Wembley came true. You all know what happened next, so I'm not going to talk about that. Except to say, as I said earlier, that football has the ability to suspend your life for 90 minutes. And that's what it did again for me that day. It still does all these years later, and I know it's easy for me to say at nearly 70, but take it for what it is. A joy to watch, listen, talk about and be part of. But at the end of the day, it really is only a game, even if Bill Shankly thought otherwise.
Welcome back everyone then. So um, we're going to have a look now at a, at a topic that was introduced as a result of a tweet I saw from Mike Delap. So I'll hand over to him shortly. Overreaction is possibly how I would title this. Uh, and, and Mike's suggestion that maybe Rovers need to consider running Handling Our Disappointment Seminars. So Mike, why do our fans react so badly to conceding goals, defeats, team selections? The floor is yours. Okay, strap yourself in folks. This is going to get tasty and quick. Uh, I have very few pet hates in life, but this is one of them. I assume our fans do this, well, the ones that do do it, I assume is part of the reason is because their girlfriends or wives or husbands or whoever they're directly linked to don't let them behave this way throughout the rest of the week. Because they've got the mentality of an eight-year-old, it's modern football in a, in a certain in circumstance. They, you know, everyone expects success immediately. Anything that blocks this immediate success is considered the devil. So anything that happens, a goal is conceded. Uh, all of a sudden, we must find this person to blame. There's definitely someone to be held accountable, and I will find them, and I will make them pay. Uh, team selection. I'm now a, a football manager. I work in Asda from Monday to Friday, but all of a sudden, my opinion is more valid than anybody, even the people who are paid to do this. It's football. It seems to bring out uh, you know, a very passionate side in everybody. Don't get me wrong, I'm one of life's positive people. I like to see everything in a good light, or whatever's for an easy life at home. I'm that person, but on the other side of the spectrum. But the problem that you've got is that if you're a, a person who handles disappointment badly, is that your point becomes annoyingly difficult to read and very quickly. And yes, and I, I will bring Ben Berriton into this as well. The, the poor lad is 19, he's been bought in, he's played about four and a half seconds on the pitch, and all of a sudden we've wasted £7 million. Absolute nonsense. Everybody just needs to calm down. When we've lost the game, yes, absolutely. It's, it's not great. We're all disappointed. We all share that grief. But no one has died. Everybody is fine. And there's 46 games in the season. So dropping three points at Swansea is not going to end up in anybody being run over on the motorway on the way home. Thank you. Mr. Delap. <coughs> that was excellent, I thought. Excellent. <laughs> What can I possibly say? <laughs> follow that, follow that. In. Everybody else, welcome. Okay, um, Jen. Mm-hmm. Has Mr. Delap got a valid point here? <laughs> Why do our fans react so badly? God knows. And as same here, don't get me started on people having a pop at Ben Berriton. That boils my bananas, that one. While they wear the blue and white halves, the one of ours, you don't have a pop at one of your own, ever. They're ours. Be loyal. Stick up for them. Back them. All the way. That's all you have to do. On the positive side, though, it's good to know it's not just our lot. <laughs> the Dingles are calling for die shout, for example, <laughs> which is absolute ridiculousness. I, I think it's a modern it's a modern football phenomenon. This I must admit. It's I don't. Gorgeous. I, I, I think it's only a small number, but I do think it's one of those things that the small number are energised and they're amplified on social media these days. So I think you see a lot more of it. But there, there were always people moaning, even back in sort of like the late sixties and early seventies, when uh, the two Ians on the on the panel tonight were, first started going to football. Michael. Why do our fans react so badly? I think they do because it's everybody does now. We're, we're living in what I call the age of entitlement, that people think that what they want, what they scream for, what is at their heart's desire, is something that must happen. I agree with Mikey to a point, which we'll come on to in a sec, but you know, it's the same in politics. It's the same in local stuff that people are complaining about. It's the same about a shop closing down or a pub closing down in your area. It's someone's fault and someone's got to be lynched. And it's just this total lack of perspective about what's important. You know, the, the world that I inhabit, political Twitter, 
that is just absolutely insane at the moment. Whatever subject that you wish to discuss, be it you know, the leadership of one of our parties, Brexit, transphobia, whatever it is, everybody's got an opinion and it's an extreme, violent, virulent opinion. And this is what, unfortunately, is playing out in what I always used to think of my safe haven, being a moderately minded football supporter. So, Mike, it was your suggestion was that we should hold handling our disappointment seminars. Have you any idea what the agenda of that would look like, or who your guest speakers would be? I don't know. I mean, the guest speaker is me, obviously. Oh, okay. uh, at this uh, at this stage, um, I mean, I, I think the agenda would absolutely be point one: you're not allowed to inhabit Twitter or social media to any extent for up to an hour after the game, as that seems to where the, the large bulk of Exactly, it's like an insurance contract or something. You're just not allowed to utter anything <laughs> up to that point. Um, you know, I think. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I get it. We're all very, very passionate about football, as you can tell from my incoherent rant five minutes ago. It's just the case where it's almost. I find the main point here is that we all want to pull in the same direction. Yeah. And yes, you know, I know we all have different ways of doing that, but you know, that type of talk after a game where everything's shambolic or. Yeah or the worst performance we've ever seen it's you know it's just like i'll borrow michael taylor's uh, very good word there it's entitlement yeah. and it really bubbles to the fore so so, so my, my my two penneth what worth just to bring this uh, inverted commas rant to an end now, <laughs> after a game i think i always think that twitter is it's the the tap room at the local pub you know, you, you've gone into the pub after the game and it's the sort of conversations that take place in there. And if you lose and all the rest of it, there's going to be disappointment. And I think trying to trying to understand or everybody having their perspective or their position on why we've lost is is, is kind of like natural. That, that's, that's inevitable. Uh, the scapegoating is the bit. I think that that's probably where, you, where you're coming from. Uh, the, the scapegoating of individuals or the I know better than a man who's played for 20 years and has managed for 20 years because I've played football manager. There is that, that aspect of it coming through. So uh, it, it's some of it's amusing. Some of it can be quite nasty and there's no need for it. But a, a little bit of a moan, get it out of your system. I like the idea of a cooling off period. Maybe I'll try that myself. I don't know. I don't know that I could uh, I could resist the, the siren call of Twitter. Anyhow, there we go. Mike Delaps handling our disappointment seminars uh, coming coming soon. At the end of the day, as I said to Mike many years ago, we're all fans. We're in it for the life ticket. You know, we're, we're going to be we lose one week, we're still going to be there following match supporting them. You think what happened at Leicester at the weekend? It just pales in, in significance, really, in football. So we just got to get on with it. Absolutely. There we yeah. go then. So we'll we'll look out for you marketing those then, Mike. So we'll uh, we'll come back in a second with our um, shamelessly stolen quiz. Okay, welcome back to this sec- section. And if you listen to uh, an excellent podcast called The Football Ramble, they have. Uh, a section in there called Going for Gold. And the idea is that you read out successive clues to reveal the identity of a player, and the panellists have to guess. So that's what we're going to do, but we're going to do it for Blackburn Rovers players. So everybody, make sure that you're um, you're not on mute so that you can shout out, Stop! I'm going to read out a series of clues. When you think you've identified the player, shout Stop! and we'll come to you, and you can have a guess. 
If your guess is wrong, you can't have the next guess. You've got to let somebody else have the next guess. Damn it. And anticipating ah. <laughs> that people might take this incredibly competitively. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? No way. I was born on the 10th of March. Rado Grubby! <laughs> you didn't say stop. <laughs> and no. <laughs> I, w- Sorry. I, was, I was born on Couldn't the 10th resist. of March, 1973, in Nottingham. Nobody's saying stop. Oh, it's uh, not Corrado Grubby. It's Ooh, not Corrado stop. Grubby, funnily enough. Oh, no, it wasn't from there. Jen's, using, Jen's using Google. No, no, she's not. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, second clue. Stop. Did somebody say stop there? Yeah. Is it Sutton? It is. Damn you. Damn it. That was the one I thought. He's one of my own, isn't he? Well done, Linz. I did so, chuck it in there. I was a bit disappointed that you got it so quickly. I'm just saying. <laughs> Sorry. I'll read through. No, no. Very well done you. It shows, shows your knowledge. I'll read through the rest of the clues just to see if any of these would have resonated or it's uh, unusual knowledge. My middle name is uh, Roy. I played for five English teams. Can anybody name them? Chelsea, Norwich, Rovers, Villa. That's four. English, did you say? So we can't have Celtics. Lincoln. Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My last two English teams were in the same city. So you've. Yeah. I made 13 under 21 appearances. Two B-team appearances, one of which yeah. was at the Hawthorns at West Bromwich Albion. So Saturday made me think about uh, that when I took my oh. seat up at the Smethwick end. And I have one full cap for my country. I scored yeah. 47 goals in 130 games for Rovers. I was sold for £10 million in 1999. And if you hadn't got it at that point, I think I would have been very, very surprised. And lastly, I am half of a famous goal-scoring acronym. That didn't last long. I have to make it hard mm. next month. So uh, thanks very much, panellists. Uh, that, that was tremendous, as always. Um, thank you very much for your efforts and all the rest of it. There we go, then. Another month, another pod. Thanks to our terrific panel tonight. Ian, Jen, Linz, Michael, Mike. Your efforts and input, as always, are right on the button. One final thing. We are, of course, recording this episode after the weekend's terrible events. There was the helicopter crash at Leicester City. Glenn Hoddle being taken seriously ill, and Brighton fans sadly passing away at their game. Fulsome tributes have been paid across the media this weekend, and we too would like to add our own tributes to an owner who delivered an impossible dream for his club, something we can, in particular can relate to. Our best wishes go for a speedy recovery to an amazing footballer at club and international level, and our respects to a fan like each of us setting out to watch their favourite team, but tragically not returning home. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please spread the word, and we'll see you again next month. By the way, massive thank you to Joe Bamford, a BRFCS forum member, and his band The Symmetry for providing all the incidental music used in this episode. I hope you'll look them up on Facebook, and if they're playing live near to you, well, go and see them. Because that, that's the one that I avoid, actually, is um, I say to Louis, um, my much better football-educated son, yeah. I just, after we've lost, I say, what's it like out there? He says, mm, Blackburn Twitter's quite good. 
mainly because of Mikey Delap moderating things. He said, <laughs> but, but don't go anywhere near Rover's Facebook. Actually, I thought it was a pile of... <laughs> 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 they're still recording. That'll go in the Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs>